Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. We're in Luke's Gospel. We're in chapter 18. We made it about halfway through last week. Jesus dealing with a lot of issues that began back in chapter 17 when he told the disciples, you must forgive. And they said, oh Lord, increase our faith. And he started giving them all kinds of examples of what walking by faith looks like. For starters, it's just doing your duty, just showing up and doing what you're told. It's giving glory to God when he shows up and not taking it to yourself. It's living like king's kids in this present world. We're not of this earth. We're citizens of heaven. It's praying persistently and expectingly like we saw with the persistent widow. It's praying humbly and honestly like the tax collector who said, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. It's receiving simply and securely, sincerely, as a child. It's giving generously and graciously, unlike the rich young ruler, and yet like the disciples who followed freely and fully. And in fact, after Jesus was sharing all these things, Peter said to him, see, we have left all and followed you. We read in verse 28 of chapter 18. So he, Jesus, then said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. That that life of walking with the Lord is the best life ever. And especially as I think of Mother's Day and I think of my mother and how she raised me. And she, she wasn't a deep theologian. She lived out her faith. She walked out her faith. And from the day I was a small child, she taught me to sing, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And 80-some years later in her life, I remember sitting with her after she had slipped into dementia didn't know who I was, and yet I could sit down, hold her hand, and sing. Jesus loves me, this I know. And even though she didn't know my name or her name, she could sing that song. I just love that. We've left all to follow you. And Jesus says, assuredly, you can't outgive God. Follow me. Trust me. <laughs> You're going to have more in this lifetime and then eternal life. What an amazing thing. And then right at that point, we pick up where we left last week in verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, like, look, look. You know, have you ever said to somebody, look, 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 let me explain this to me. Look, look what I'm trying to tell you. Behold, okay? I'm trying to get your attention for a minute here. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. 
well, that's rather obvious. We've been on the road with you for weeks now, heading that direction. We know where we're going. Or do you? When will the kingdom come? Where will the kingdom come? They keep asking these questions. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished, fulfilled, just as God said from the beginning. His promises, His prophecies are yes and amen. And He goes on to explain what He means by these prophecies. For He, speaking of Jesus Himself, will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked, insulted, and spit upon. They will scourge Him and kill Him, and on the third day He'll rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, concealed from them. The word is cryptia, where we get like cryptic. Uh, something, you, a riddle you can't quite understand. I'm not putting the pieces together quite right. They, it was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. It's interesting as we go through the Scriptures how when Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem for Passover, as they did always, as Jesus did all of His years, one year, about the age of 12, He got left behind. They were out on the road going home. They realized he was gone. They came frantically searching all over for him. They found him in the temple. And do you remember what Jesus said to them? You should know I must, I must be about my father's business. And it says, and they didn't understand what he was talking about. And this starts off a whole chain of and they did not understand what he was talking about. Um, in Luke chapter 24, I'm going to jump us ahead a little bit, kind of spoiler warning. But this is now after Jesus' death and resurrection. In Luke chapter 24, he's risen, and he meets with his disciples, and he says to them on the road to Emmaus, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded to them in the Scriptures all the things concerning Himself. He goes on, verse 44, And He said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning Me. And He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then He said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. And now that I have spoken that to you, you are witnesses of these things. If you hadn't known it, know it now, that Jesus came, to live a sinless life, to die in our place, to take the punishment for the, the sin that we have done, falling short of the glory of God, that our debt would be paid on the cross of Calvary. <laughs> and our debt was paid, and it was buried, and He was in the grave for three days, but He didn't stay in the grave. 
He rose on the third day to prove everything that he said is true, and you can take it to the bank. Now, we live in the church age, the age after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, that he would go away and send us another helper, that he could guide us into all truth. And through the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can understand these things, and we can recognize, and we can look back on history and see, oh, that's how that works. And that in believing, we can be saved through his finished work on the cross. But as of yet, this is prior to his crucifixion and resurrection. The Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out into the hearts of believers. So they're trying to riddle this out. And they're expecting, as everybody is expecting, as this entourage is moving towards Jerusalem. Remember, it's Passover season. So there's like two million people out on the roads, right? It's just a caravan, and everybody's part of this caravan, and they're moving on. We're going up to Jerusalem, and as they're going up this way, trying to understand what does this mean, this Messiah, this promised Savior of Israel, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. At this time, will you restore your kingdom? Are we going up here? We're going to see some fireworks, and you're going to put down Herod. You're going to put down Pontius Pilate. You're going to raise us up, and we're going to rule and reign as we're supposed to. And Jesus says, no, not now, not yet. That was the parable he had just given earlier, explaining that I must go away, and I will return for you, but not yet. And so there's going to be some of this going on as we go through this day. They, un they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things that were spoken. So here we are now, approaching Jerusalem. Verse 35, then it happened. As he was coming near Jericho, Jericho sits at about 800 feet below sea level, at the bottom of the Judea, Judean hills, there's the Wadi Kelp, this gorge, this gulch that runs about 19 miles up to Jerusalem that sits up on top of the mountains, up above sea level, uh, thousands of feet above sea level. They get snow there. But down here, below sea level, is this town of Jericho. Deuteronomy tells us it was called the City of Palms, uh, and it's one of the most ancient, continually inhabited cities on earth. I've been there. It's a pretty neat place to go, but it's really, really arid really desolate. You know, we call this the Snake River Plain, but I mean, there's shrubs and everything there. It is just dirt, but they do plant palm trees there, uh, date palms. And so he's going into Jericho, and it says a certain blind man sat by the road begging. Now, we read this account in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, and in Matthew's gospel, it says that there were actually two men there begging, but this man is going to take preeminence in Luke's version of this story, and you'll understand from Mark chapter 10 that he's given a name. He's known as Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. And as Mark would write this gospel and it would go out to all the world in the early years of the church, everybody knew this guy. He had a reputation. You could say Bartimaeus. You know, blind Bartimaeus. Bar means son. Timaeus means son. And uh, Timaeus just simply means somebody who honors God. So this is Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, and he's sitting by the road begging, and hearing the multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. 
Now, remember, I told you, there's caravans of people. They're all going up to Jerusalem. They're all going up. So he's sitting here begging, getting alms. That's how he, you know, gets by in life. And people come and, you know, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. And then he hears this great tumult. There's just this noise. It was like, wow, something's really going on. What is that? Oh, that's Jesus of Nazareth. Everybody's so excited. Messiah, he's here. He's coming. He's going on up to Jerusalem. Woo! Right? And he's like, what is that all about? They told him, it's Jesus of Nazareth passing by. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He uses Jesus' messianic title, son of David. That means that he recognizes who this Jesus of Nazareth is. He's the promised one. He's the deliverer of Israel. He's Messiah. He's the Christ. And he knows the mission of Christ. And so he cries out to him, have mercy on me. The same thing that the sinner said in the temple. Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus said that man went away justified because he had that humble heart and he recognized his need, his desperation, his need. And so he's crying out loud enough, even though there's a large crowd making a lot of noise, his voice rises above theirs. Verse 39, then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. Shh, don't make a scene, don't make a scene. This is Jesus' hour. You're distracting. You're pulling attention away from Jesus. Just be quiet, you know. He should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, this is fun if you can kind of get yourself a, a, a Greek uh, dictionary or whatever and kind of get into this the first time he cries out he yells out really loud son of david have mercy on me i mean he's he's crying out and that's what that words mean he's shouting but now the word changes and this word is he is screaming at the top of his lungs they say be quiet he turns it up full volume everything he's got from his toenails out son of david have mercy on me he's not going to stop he's not going to let this moment go by It's kind of interesting. We just came from the passage just prior. We opened up. Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, come on, look, guys. We're going up to Jerusalem. Okay? Behold, and they didn't understand. What's this business about being scourged and spit upon and crucified and buried and resurrected? We don't get it. They didn't understand. Jesus told them to look, but they didn't get it. And here is blind Bartimaeus, and he gets it, and he gets Jesus. He understood Jesus' mission. It's interesting, Jesus, his first outreach after being driven into the wilderness by Satan and tempted, he goes up to his hometown in Nazareth, and there at the synagogue on the Sabbath day, they hand him a scroll. He stands up to speak, and he declares out of the prophet Isaiah, this is my mission. He would say in Luke chapter 4 at verse 18, quoting Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, 
to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book and he gave it back to the tenant and he sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Jesus' reputation has gone before him. And I dare say this morning, Jesus' reputation has gone before us and into all the world. And we sit here today pondering, do we see? Do we understand? Do we recognize our desperate need? And are we willing to embarrass ourselves to humble ourselves, to cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Well, Bartimaeus does. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. It'd be interesting if there was a church made up of all these different people, right? The persistent widow, you know, who gets her way. She's one of the founders of a church. Um, the rich young ruler, he won't go to that church, but the apostles, certainly they'll be there. How about the tax collector, have mercy on me, a sinner? This whole crowd of people, a hodgepodge of folks coming to Jesus from all different places for all different reasons, but all of them find Jesus. And, and Jesus meets them at their need. And here, Bartimaeus, no doubt, would have been part of that church. And Jesus asks, what do you want from me? And he says, Lord, that I may receive my sight. You know, there was so many stories already that we've read of people who have received their sight. It's not the first time Jesus has healed the blind. In some cases, he spoke to them. In other cases, he spat on the ground and made mud and stuck it in his eye, told him to go wash. He came back to wash again. There's not a formula for how it happens, but the person of Jesus Christ is who we need to come to. And we need to come to it with our heart, from our toenails up, right? And, and, and so this is what's happening. And it's interesting, this word for that I might receive my sight is that I might see again. Something you don't get necessarily out of your English translation. But this is somebody who had lost their sight somewhere along the way, right? And maybe that's some of us, sometimes. We see Jesus clearly. We see His purpose. We see His mission. We understand who He is, but then we lose focus. We lose sight. And then all of a sudden, you're just in your business, not His business, your business, and something happens. It just catches your attention. <gasps> What's that all about? <gasps> I think God's trying to get my attention here. Who is that? Oh, that's Jesus. Jesus, oh, oh that I might receive my sight. Can you give my sight to me again? I need it back. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Again, your faith. What faith? The faith that got him to not shut up. The faith that got him to keep crying out like the persistent widow, right? Like the Fathers bringing their children to be blessed, like all the different examples we've seen here, like the leper that had been healed, and the one out of 99 comes back and says, thank you, right? And this is his faith, something that we see. We talked about a couple weeks back, faith in the Bible, over 200 times. It's a verb. 
It's faith in action. It's, it's faith that you can see. And this is his faith. He he's, won't let go. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Yeah, I'm sure they did. Wouldn't we? Woohoo! Wow! I just saw something amazing. Well, I'll tell you what, men's breakfast yesterday morning, I saw something amazing. And I saw people raise their hand to receive the Lord, and I saw lives change forever. And I know that God, every single day, does stuff. If we will just look, and even if we can't see, we ask, Lord, help me see. I want to see you. I want to be part of what you're doing. I want to go where you're going. And he did. Immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it and gave praise to God. Now remember, the, the apostles, a lot of them didn't get it still. <laughs> in fact, in John's gospel, it's not until the day that Jesus is risen from, or actually a week after Jesus rises, that they're gathered together in the upper room. Thomas wasn't there the first time. He says, I don't, I'm not going to believe it unless I put my fingers in, in the prints in his hand and in my side, right? And uh, sure enough, Jesus comes walking in the room, and, then, and he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord, my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. I know as a young Christian, I always used to thought, man, God can do anything He wants. Why doesn't He just show up? Why doesn't He just come here and we can all see Him and talk to Him? The truth is, He, he has. He did. It's recorded. It's the most solid fact in all of human history, most recorded fact by people who loved him and hated him, but the record is just overflowing that, in fact, God became flesh and dwelt amongst us, that we might behold him full of grace and truth. And, and, and yet there are some people who say, unless I see him, unless I stick my fingers in his wounds, in his hands, unless I put my hand in his side, you know, it, it occurred to me one time as I was reading through that passage, and I'm a bit of a skeptic myself, Thomas is actually one of my heroes. He does ask the questions, the hard questions. He gives us the great answers like, we don't know how to go there and get to you. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and life. I'm so grateful Thomas asked these kind of questions so I can get those kinds of answers. But Thomas says, unless I put my finger in the prints of his hand, his hand is, really, do you really want to do that? Jesus walks in the room right now. Oh, Jesus is here. Oh, this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. Here, can I put my hand in there? Yuck. That's, that's scary. That's gory. And yet, maybe some of you are like me. Maybe some of you are like a Thomas. Um, we go to the school of hard knocks. We have to learn things the hard way. You want to believe in me? Blessed are those who haven't seen me and believed. But you really want to do that? You want to walk the road I walked? You want to feel my scars? You want to feel my pain? You want to suffer like I suffered for you? I'll do that for you, Jesus will say. And it's much better to say, <laughs> I, just, I, I love you, Jesus. I'm good. 
I'm good with this, right? Like blind Bartimaeus. But everybody gives praise to God, okay? So Jesus, it says, verse 19, we're going to go a little ways through this this morning. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, some people look at this and it's like, it looks like he went in a Jericho and out of Jericho and in a Jericho and out of Jericho, and, and he did, actually. There were, in Jesus' day, two Jerichos. Um, there, was, there was actually a prophecy that the man who rebuilds Jericho, because God told him not to rebuild it, will be cursed, right? Because God had to conquer it. You remember when the children of Israel were traveling through the wilderness, we read about it in the book of Exodus, the book of Numbers, and in the book of Joshua, they come into the promised land, and they march around Jericho, right? Seven days, and they shout, and the walls fall down, and God says, don't rebuild the city anymore. Well, years later, one of the kings did rebuild the city. He says, but whoever rebuilds the city will pay with his children. And his sons died in the process. So there was the old city of Jericho out in the plains, and you can go to it today. I've been there. I've walked up on the mound and gone to the excavation where you can see the wall that fell down around Jericho. It's there. And there's this big old dirt mound. But then a little ways away is the now current city of Jericho, and so this kind of explains how Je Jesus walked in, he walked out, he walked back in again. And so he, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. So he's coming right through the city, and now this is the part where everybody's living and hanging out, the big city. Now behold, there's that word again. Are we going to see what he's going to tell us? Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He sought to see Jesus who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. Okay? So here we have this, this situation set up with Zacchaeus. Um, the, the name, literally Zacchaeus, means son of righteousness. And no doubt when his parents, you know, named him, they looked at that little baby and says, oh, he's so perfect, he's so pure, he's so righteous. Oh, we'll call him son of righteousness, Zacchaeus, right? And yet here he is now, a tax collector. And not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. And the idea is he lived along Jericho, along the King's Highway, the route from Damascus down to Egypt. And as the caravans would come back and forth, he would tax all the traffic. Not only that, but he would tax all the residents of his particular region. It was something known as tax farming. And they would get a region, and as much taxes as they could raise, they'd send some of it up to the Roman Empire, and some of it they would keep for themselves. And tax collectors were notorious, not only just for being betrayers of their, their Jewish neighbors, right? Taking our money and giving it to this foreign occupying force, we don't like you for that. Plus, they always skimmed a bit off the top, and they were known for um, all of that corruption. And so... Um, this is, this is Zacchaeus, this is the moment, and it says he walked, sought to see Jesus, but he could not, for he was of short stature. That word, uh, short stature, is minkos in the Greek, doesn't mean much to you, but that's actually the word for dwarf. So nowadays, I think the more politically correct term is little people, but he was one of these. He was a very, very short man, and right, the crowd's up here, and I can't see, I want to see this guy, who is this guy, and and we get to see him. You wonder, maybe, where did he ever get to meet this guy in the first place? If you remember, back in chapter 15, as Jesus is having this confrontation with the Pharisees and kind of scolding them for their 
self-righteousness and their holier-than-thou attitude, it says in verse, chapter 15, verse 1, then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to hear him. So he was always drawing a crowd of these tax collectors. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he has to speak a parable. I came to heal those who are in need, you know. Um, in Luke chapter 5, Luke tells us about when Jesus called Matthew, Levi, to follow him. In verse 27 of Luke chapter 5, it says, After these things he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he left all, just walked away from the tax booth, left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And so somewhere along the way, Zacchaeus has either heard of or maybe even been invited to dinner at some point or been in the crowd and heard all about this Jesus. It's the talk of the town, and certainly as everybody's on the way up to Jerusalem for Passover, everybody's talking about Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, and now here he is, Jesus is coming through town. He wants to see him, but he can't. He's not big enough, you know. Uh, what did we say? He's a wee little man. A wee little man was he, right? Our Sunday school song, you might remember that better than I remember it, but... Uh, cute little song. He sought to see Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was short stature. So he ran ahead, and for a tax collector, somebody in authority, somebody that's supposed to be dignified, this is very undignified, especially if he's a little guy, and the crowd is coming in, <laughs> I gotta see him, I gotta see him, I gotta see him. But again, he's willing to humble himself. He's willing to embarrass himself. He's willing to do whatever it takes because he needs to see Jesus. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. Now, Jericho was known as the city of palms, but it's really hard to climb a palm tree. If you're a cocoa pilot in the Philippines, you might know how with a couple ropes, you can, you can go up like a monkey, but not not Zacchaeus, but a sycamore tree has branches and leaves and shade, and no doubt he was able to work his way up into the branches of the tree. Um, he looked up, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. That's so cool, right? Zacchaeus thinks he's going to see Jesus, but actually Jesus is coming to see Zacchaeus. You ever notice sometimes how you're going through life and, and circumstances conspire and next thing you know, God was in it all along? Looking back, you can see His fingerprints. Looking back, you can see Him moving everything on the, chalk, on the board to get you to where you need to be. This is what Jesus, I'm going to come and I'm going to stay at your house. So He made say haste and came down and received Him joyfully. Oh, I'm so happy to have Jesus in my house. There's a little pamphlet that I love sharing and giving out to people. Most of you probably have had this because we've handed it out at the church several times. I might need to get more and hand them out again. But it's called My Heart, Christ's Home by Ralph Boyd Munger. And it tells the story of somebody who invites Jesus to his house. And as he, Jesus comes into his house, he goes through all the different rooms in the house and deals with things like 
his study, his office, and he looks at what's on the bookshelf or maybe what's on the internet or what's on, you know, and he goes, hmm, you know, we might need to clean up this room a little bit if I'm going to stay with you. And he moves on into the kitchen and he sees what kind of things he's feasting on and pleasing himself with. And he goes, hmm, we might need to change what's in the pantry. I'm going to stay here with you. And he moves into the living room and he sees what's going on with all the friends and social affairs and things that he's got going on. Hmm, maybe we need to change this up a little bit if I'm going to stay with you. And it goes through all these different places, the bedroom, and finally ends up with this one closet in the hallway that's locked. And Jesus meets him one day as he comes home and he goes, there's this closet up there and it stinks there's something putrefying in there there's something dead and i can't stay with you if we don't fix that and the man just oh he's loath to give him the key but he finally does and he's i've tried to clean this out my whole life and i can't do it i just can't do it i've tried and i can't do it jesus says no problem that's what i'm here for and he cleans the room out he makes it perfect and the man finally decides instead of you being a guest in my house how about I'll sign title deed of the house over to you, and now it's yours, and I can just live here and be your servant, right? And it's this beautiful picture of inviting Jesus into our life, into our house, into our home, and letting him have access to all the corners, all the dark places, because that's what he comes to do, is to clean us up and make us clean. And when we finally surrender and get that right, it's like Peter, when Jesus says, I need to wash, he says, wash all of me, head to toe, man, I want the whole works, right? And, and, and so here's Zacchaeus, and he's so joyful, verse 7, but when they saw it, all the crowd, Jesus, our Messiah, the Savior, our Deliverer, the Holy One, the, you know, what's he doing? He's going to the tax collector's house. That rat, how could he go to that guy's house? That can be us sometimes. There are some people in our community that some of us might look down our noses at. At the very least, let's say we'd feel very uncomfortable around them. We'd feel we don't fit in. Especially for those of us that maybe have been walking with the Lord a long time. And he's done a lot of work cleaning up all the closets, <laughs> all the stuff in our heart. We feel pretty clean. Now, we don't want to go hang out with those smelly people, those people that have too much of the world on them. And this is what the people are seeing. Jesus is going and talking. He's hanging out. He's going to the house of Zacchaeus. Who, he's gone to be with a guest with a man who is a sinner. Well, duh. If Jesus is going to be a guest with anybody, they're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God, right? There's none righteous, not a single one of us in here. So if we want Christ to come into our house, we have to recognize we, whether he comes to my house or your house or that person's house, yeah, he's hanging out with a sinner. That's what he comes to do, to seek and save that which is lost. That's what we're going to see at the end of this. Verse 8, then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I have, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything by anyone, by false accusation, I restore fourfold. One of the things we see about Zacchaeus is he knows his Old Testament. He knows his law. In Numbers chapter 5, verse 7, it says that we are to restore plus one-fifth if we have defrauded God, but also if we have defrauded somebody else, we are to restore double 
and even to the place where we have taken someone's sheep, God says to pay it back with four more sheep. Get back five, the one you stole plus more. So Zacchaeus knows the law. He knows the Bible. He knows the rules. He knows what he has to do, and he does it. You know what we call that? Repentance. You come clean. You confess. I'm a sinner. I need you. My Savior, have mercy on me and look upon me and God will set you free. He'll make you clean. This is what he does to Zacchaeus. It's such a beautiful story. Verse 9, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. If you happen to look at our webpage from time to time, you might notice where we put up what we're teaching out of. We're in the book of Numbers on Wednesday night, and we're here in the book of Luke. And if you see, that's the verse that I have put up there over all the sheep, that he has, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. This is, this is the, one of the great themes that runs through Luke's gospel, that runs through the whole scriptures, that we're lost but we're not abandoned. We're not forsaken. Our shepherd will leave the 99 and come after us. And pretty much everybody in this room can give testimony. That's why you're here. Wherever you were at one point somewhere in life, Jesus came looking for you. And you were humble enough and honest enough and desperate enough and real enough to say, here I am, Lord. Do what you need to do with me. I, I want to be with you. And sure enough, this is what happens. He says, uh, I love this, today salvation, and that salvation is uh, Yeshua. It's the feminine word, or the feminine pronunciation of the same word, Yeshua. Yeshua is Jesus' name in Hebrew, okay? That's what he was, was nicknamed by everybody, uh, Yeshua. But here, salvation, Yahweh is salvation, is what Yeshua means. And it says here, salvation Jesus, God, has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. Jesus came to seek these children who knew the way and got lost. They went astray, and yet he's not willing to leave them. And here Jesus has an appointment with Zacchaeus. He also is a son of Abraham, and I'm not going to leave him out there wandering in the wilderness. I'm bringing him home. I love that. That's why he came. That's his whole mission. We talked about that in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the gospel to the poor and to re recover sight to the blind and set at liberty the captives. And, and this is what Jesus is all about. And Zacchaeus knows it. And Bartimaeus knows it. The question is, do you know it? Because that's what our Lord does. That's who he is. We're going to close up then with the parable of the Minas. This won't take very long. In fact, the worship team, you can come on up. Now, as they heard these things, everybody's watching, everybody's seeing, everybody's scratching their head and wondering. Some people understand, some people don't understand. It's all just going on all around. It's this huge circus. As they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. It's not going to. He just said, we're going to go up there. I'm going to be cursed and crucified. And they were expecting him to be crowned the king. 
So he gives them this parable to set that straight. He says, therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants and delivered to them ten minas and said to them, do business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to raise to reign over us. So it was when he returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. A familiar story, familiar for several reasons. We have something very similar to it in Matthew 25 where Jesus tells the parable of the nobleman, the rich man going away to get a kingdom, and he gives everybody talents. You'll notice in Matthew's gospel in chapter 25, these talents, he gives five to one, two to another, and one to another. That's eight, if you do your math, right? Here it's ten, and it's ten meat, and it's not talents. The point that I'm making in this is Jesus would often share the same message with different people on different occasions, okay? And here he is in Jericho, in Matthew, he's in the temple. He's already up. So this is the first iteration that we're going to hear recorded in the Scriptures. But Jesus would tell this story to many people over and over and over again because the point is always valid. And the point is, I'm going away, I'm going to get my kingdom, and I'm going to come back. And what I'm looking for is that you are doing business in my absence. Do business till I come or occupy until I come. And he gives them 10 minas, okay, not eight talents. And then he divides them amongst the 10 servants. And you see here in this story, uh, in verse 14, or I mean, in verse 13, it's his servants. And in verse 14, it's the citizens. The citizens hate him. Most of the servants serve him, but there's a wicked servant in here also. It's a picture of those citizens of Israel in Jesus' day, some followers of Herod, some followers of Pilate, but just citizens. Uh, they might be following the religious trends. They might be following their nationalism as Israelites, but they're just citizens, and they're waiting for their fortunes to be restored. That As citizens of Israel, as Jews, we can get back to our proper place of authority uh, and position in life, okay? Those are the citizens. They hate this guy, this king who goes away to get noblemen to get a, a kingdom and come back. But the servants, he gives them minas. Ten servants, ten minas. Does he give one servant to each, or one mina to each servant? Or does he mix it up? I mean, it could be a different, you know, kind of a, we don't, we don't know how this works, but I'm going to guess it's one per one. And this is one of the differences between the Matthew's rendition of the parable of the talents. Here, the minas are just like you and I. We come to our master. He's gone away gone to heaven. He's coming back to get, come and get us. But in the meantime, he wants to take what he's given us and do business with it. We all get the same amount. We get all the same amount of salvation. Everyone gets saved to the uttermost. You don't get more salvation or less salvation. I'm not more saved than you. We're all saved. It's done. Was done 2,000 years ago on the cross. You can't add to it. You can't subtract from it. You just get it. You're free. You've been saved. You get the same Holy Spirit, each and every one of us, the Spirit of God indwelling in us. 
Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it talks about he will divide amongst us gifts, talents, different to one another, but we all get the same Holy Spirit, and we all get the same gospel commission. We are all called to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit, right? Teaching them to obey all I have commanded you, and lo, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. Okay, so we all get that, and that's this parable here. But what are we going to do with what we've been given? Let me, by a show of hands, have you been saved? Okay, by a show of hands, have you received His Holy Spirit? By a show of hands, have you received a gospel commission? Okay, then the question is, what are we going to do with that? This is what the parable is about. So it was that when he turned, he received the kingdom. Then he commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much each man gained by trading. Okay? He's expecting fruit. Or, and it's not, it's not unreasonable. He doesn't ask us to do what he doesn't do himself. Don't you know I must be about my father's business? He was always about his father's business. He was always being pragmatic, practical. He was always investing in the kingdom. Then the first came saying, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. That's a thousand percent increase. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful and very little, have authority over 10 cities. Do you understand this about heaven? Randy Alcorn has a wonderful book called Heaven, and it's the theology of heaven. I recommend you get it if you want to know what heaven's like. It's fantastic. But in this, one of the things you might want to understand is that you're going to be busy in heaven. You're going to have work to do. You're going to have purpose. You're going to have a reason. You're going to have authority. And, and depending on what you do here with the talents and the time, the mina, the gifts that God has given you with the gospel commission and with the Holy Spirit, you're going to get more in heaven. The reward for doing really good and working really hard is more work. Now, for people who don't like serving, don't like working, don't want to serve their master, that doesn't sound like a great reward. That's not how I want to spend eternity in heaven doing more but for those who have understood what it is to serve the lord and see that you can't outgive him and how he just pours down more and more and more upon you it's like man i want to do more and more and that's what heaven's going to be like it's going to be so exciting okay verse 19 uh like or uh, verse 18 and the second came saying master your mina has earned five minas 500 percent, still a great increase likewise he said to him you will be over five cities and another came saying master here is your mina which i have kept put away in a handkerchief what was he told to do with it do business till i come occupy till i come invest do something with this till i come for i feared you because you are an austere man or a severe man or a strict man. That's how some people look at God. Like he's just up in heaven with a lightning bolt waiting until he can zap you. This is not who God is. God loves us. God is coming back to receive us to be with him. And he's so excited to see what we've done on earth. Just to look into our eyes and just enjoy time together. He says, I feared you because you are an austere man. That's his understanding, his theology, his bad interpretation of who God is, not God who he is. He says, you collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow, which is not true. God sows and plants everything for us. And we just get the privilege of going out into the harvest field. And he said to him, verse 22, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, or at least that was your understanding of me, okay? 
we see, behold, look, do you understand? Here's Jesus. Do you get him? Do you understand who this king who's gone away and is coming back is all about? You think you know me and you think he's going to judge me when I get back. I come to reward you. But if, if your thinking is I'm going to judge you, you really don't know me at all. You knew that I was an austere man, or you thought you knew, collecting what you did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. When, why then did you not put my money in the bank? <laughs> that my, at my coming, you might have collected it with interest. I mean, you didn't have to do anything if you just put it someplace and gain a little interest off of it. Verse 24, and he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to a master, he has ten minas. What, what, what does he need another mina for? The whole point is God wants to see fruit. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you salvation. I'm going to give you your, the gospel commission, but I expect you to do something with it. And if you're not going to do anything with it, I might as well give it to somebody who will. Kind of heavy for some of us that maybe feel like I might not have been doing enough. I know I'm out of time, but I got to tell this right now. Because it's it it probably is somebody in this room, but I remember as a young man going through Bible college, every time I would sit in the front row because Bible college students were always required to sit in the front row, and the pastor would be preaching. That's Pastor Gerald Hagerman, my pastor, and he'd come to a passage like this every time. I'd come up after the service. I need prayer. I need prayer. I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. And he would look at me and go, Mike, I'm not talking to you. You're, you're, you're teaching in Bible college, you're teaching in the sixth grade, you're cleaning up the campus, you're, you, you got stuff going on all over the place. I'm talking to the people who aren't doing anything. If you're somebody that's not really doing anything with your life, you're not doing anything with the Lord, you can't look at your life and see anything that you've allowed God to have and your life take control and, and do fruit, then maybe this is for you. It's time to perk up and listen. But the idea is, are you surrendered? Are you giving it to the Lord? He said to those who stood by, take the mina from them and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. He says, for I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. But bring, those, bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. That's heavy. That's dark. Did you hear that? Let me repeat it again in case you think I stuttered, because I might have. Bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. <gasps> See, there it is. That's the lightning bolt. I told you, he's the kind of God that's going to toast everybody. No, not everybody. Did you read carefully? Bring here those who hate me. Do you hate God? You don't want to have anything to do with God? You think this Jesus stuff is just stupid? waste of time, don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, be careful what you say. Because here he says, out of your mouth, I'll judge you. You don't want to go to heaven. You don't want to spend eternity with him. You don't want to have the joy of your salvation, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the, the, just the wonderful opportunity to glorify him all the time. You don't want that. He's not going to force it on you. But you have a choice, life or death. That's what he's trying to say. Remember, faith is a verb. It's what you do. That's your faith. Do business. You don't do it to gain. You're not doing this to try to add to your pile. 
And Jesus didn't give them this task so that they could get rich. That wasn't the idea at all. He wasn't trying to make a bunch of money. He owns it all. What he was trying to do was build character. He gave you an opportunity to grow, an opportunity to show that you love him, an opportunity to show that you believe in him, an opportunity to show that you're looking forward to his return, and you're just busy in the present day doing exactly that. We're going to pick up in verse 28 next week. He's going to enter Jerusalem. We know why he's going there, don't we? We know what he's going to do. We know what he has done. We know what he's already completed on our behalf. We know what he's given us. The question is, what are we going to do with it? Father God, I want to thank you so much for Luke recording these stories, Lord. As we know uh, it's been recorded by so many others, Matthew, Mark, and John. But again, even in Jesus' day, 2,000 years ago, the Jews wrote about him. The Romans wrote about him. The world wrote about him. The greatest fact of history. And now here we stand before you. The way, the truth, and the life. And we make confession that you are our Lord. We want to follow you all the days of our lives. We give you all. We surrender all to you, knowing that you have already given more than we'll ever dream or imagine. I thank you for each soul in this room today. And I thank you, Lord, for the stories that we'll have to share next week as we can tell each other about what you have done in our lives. Until you come to bring us home, help us to be busy about your business according to your Holy Spirit, in your glorious name. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.